Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on today's episode, we tackle a topic that many of us are struggling with today, whether we're educators or not. But definitely those of us who are educators have struggled with this at least once in your career, maybe multiple times, unfortunately, depending on your circumstances. And that's burnout. I don't know of an educator that I admire, respect, or look up to who is working their tail off, who hasn't experienced burnout at some point and may on a, maybe on a regular basis. Our guest today, Chase Milkey, has written a book called The Burnout Cure, which is uh, about learning to love teaching again. And the thing I appreciate is that, you know, yes, it's called The Burnout Cure, but Chase would be the first one to tell us that he knows there's no cure. It's trying a lot of different tactics to help us rejuvenate our love for teaching or our love for being in education. And what I appreciate about Chase is, you know, Chase is a longtime teacher, now a teacher coach, and now a speaker and author. Um, he has a video that we'll talk about in the interview that has on YouTube that has a million views. That's crazy to think about any of us making a video that gets over a million views. And what I appreciate about it is that he talks directly to the camera. He's talking to each of us, I feel, even though this one's for students. Uh, he's, he's talking specifically to us and he doesn't miss. He uses some language that may hurt and cut deep, but it all comes across in, as humble. It comes across as um, encouraging, which is a weird way to feel when someone's coming at you with direct language. And it comes across inspiring. I, I find Chase to be very thoughtful. He loves research, as he talks about. He nerds out uh, on studying research all the time, which is really fun to think about him just spending hours and hours in a library. I So on top of the research, he loves trying new things. And so he's someone who thinks outside the box, which is also encouraging. And again, he's someone who's not afraid to say the hard thing as well as say the right, inspiring, encouraged thing. So he's incredibly entertaining. He is thoughtful, deep, and funny he's just he's the the whole package in terms of uh someone that you want to dive into a topic like burnout with and so this conversation was a very rich conversation we dive into his history as a teacher all the way up to him coaching teachers him being in videos and now him being an author and so uh, there are a lot of really great nuggets here about how you and i can battle our own burnout when we experience it and um I just hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I think it was perfectly time for where I'm at in my life and where season of life a lot of my friends are in right now, especially post-pandemic in education. And I think it will be great for each of you. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, as always, thank you for your support. If you haven't subscribed, please hit the subscribe button as well as introduce uh, this podcast to any of your friends that you think would get a lot out of this. We appreciate your support and we hope that, we appreciate you making the time. Time is something you can never get back. So we appreciate the fact that you spend an hour with us each week. And we hope that we can continue to put out content that lifts you up and helps you go through the own change that you're trying to experience and make happen in your life. So uh, enjoy this conversation and we'll see you talk soon. <laughs> well, Chase, thanks for making time to be here with us today. I'm excited to talk to you. Absolutely, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So as, as you know, our first question is the same. Who are you yeah. and what do you love about what you do? Yeah. So I'm Chase Milkey. I, my day job is an instructional coach within my district. So I work with all secondary teachers, particularly teachers within their first few years. Prior to this role, I taught high school English, psychology, and communications for about 12 years. Um, and that's 
kind of the day job in my moonlighting world, I am a speaker, I'm an author, I'm a workshop and professional development trainer, um, particularly around the topic of well-being. So how do we help students achieve greater well-being? How do we help teachers, staff, school leaders um, build their own capacity and their own well-being? So I get to nerd out about happiness and meaning and purpose all the time throughout my day, <laughs> which is so much fun. I mean, it's the type of stuff where every time I'm speaking on a topic, I get to not only apply it to myself, but actually see the shifts in people um, that they're not only thinking about their role as a student or as a teacher. They're looking at it through the lens of how does this impact my entire worldview and that's a really empowering thing well I know that uh, you know you talk about how fortunate you are and getting to nerd out on it but yeah. anybody who knows you and you know hopefully we're introducing you to a number of folks who haven't got a chance yeah. to really dive deep into your work yet because it's awesome I, I believe you are trying to encourage educators to also be in the space of geeking out on happiness and purpose and all those yeah. things is that pretty accurate in terms of your, yeah. of your focus effort? for sure and that kind of replicates my experience that I was geeking out in the realm of psychology, particularly positive psychology for a while, just on my own of like, how, how do I survive life? How do I deal with my first few years teaching? And then it kind of shifted to like, why aren't we teaching students this? Why isn't this more a part of our conversation? You know, rather than individuals just having to figure it out, why don't we do more coursework and conversations around that? So um, it very much is like, not only for myself, but how do we help spread that out to others? How long have you known you wanted to be a teacher and how did you get into teaching? I first got the itch to teach when I was, I think, a junior in high school. And truth be told, I was a terrible student. I was <laughs> I was a mischief maker. I got kicked out of class all the time, skipped school probably a hundred times. And that was before the days where they actually tracked sort of things. So <laughs> like I was just into all sorts of nonsense in large part because I didn't feel like a lot of my teachers treated me as a person. I felt like I was a problem or I was a number. Um, and so I felt a huge disconnect within education, but I had an assistant principal named Pat who was a master of love and logic. He just like, he knew how to shift things into questions and show empathy, but get me thinking about my own choices and consequences. And I, I remember the light bulb moment going off in my head. I was literally about to skip school for probably the hundredth time. And I was like, you know what? Like I have such an issue with education and how teachers are treating me. Why am I running from this problem rather than trying to do something about this problem? And then like this little light bulb started creeping in. Of, oh my gosh, like you, you should teach. Like you like people. You obviously like attention because you're a mischief maker. So like do something with this. So I dove in and I had no idea what I wanted to teach. I started getting into the idea of the brain and human psychology. I randomly came across a book at a book sale called The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. And it was totally like, oh, this looks weird. I'm going to read it. And it completely shifted my view of how our thoughts and our mindsets actually increase our suffering sometimes rather than being able to look more calmly and collectively at what's happening. And so like these two things were kind of simmering in the back of my mind If I knew I wanted to teach, but I didn't know what, but there was this realm of well-being and helping people understand happiness. And so, you know, I, I dabbled around with a few different things to teach, like history and government, and those did not go well in my undergrad. And then I just kind of landed in English because I liked books and I liked stories. Um, but it wasn't until probably my second or third year that I started thinking like, what I want to do is teach happiness and teach the research-based practices around that. So even though I kept teaching English throughout 
you know, a decade or more, most of my love and passion was around human flourishing and well-being and how to teach that. So when you were teaching English, I, I'm curious, I think, you know, I taught trigonometry and <laughs> I will not say I was as focused on happiness uh, as you were. I was thinking uh, about, you know, I, I always thought, you know, teaching trigonometry, I would be lucky if I had one third of the kids really excited to come to class that day, just for the subject I was teaching, not for me, nothing personal. And so I always try to figure out how do we tie this into the real life for every kid? And I'm curious for you, what, how did you balance teaching the subject? But I'm sure you let a lot of the things that you were reading, a lot of the, the skill sets you wanted your kids to learn to be successful in life bleed in there. How'd you, how'd you marry those while you were teaching? Yeah. So there wasn't many opportunities to like do mindfulness meditation in the middle right. of reading Romeo and Juliet. Like that just didn't happen. So uh, a lot of it was, I got real into the concept of human motivation and intrinsic motivation and goal striving. And so looking at these pieces like efficacy and motivation and self-belief and self-concept, that was kind of my access point of, you know, I never really cared particularly whether students were phenomenal at writing an essay because I knew for some of them that just like wasn't their career path, but I cared for every student to feel at least the efficacy that they could write an essay or that if they had a difficult moment, they knew how to ask for help or support, or they could set a tangible goal of what they wanted to accomplish that day and that week and we could follow up on it. So it was a lot of kind of marrying the psychology around motivation to whatever we were talking about in class. And that was kind of for me, what allowed even teaching English to be fulfilling, even though I wasn't crazy about even some of the texts that we were reading, it was, I'm still helping kids learn about themselves and develop the soft skills, quote unquote, that they're going to need moving forward. Yeah. What, what parts of the job, I mean, right now we're going to, we're going to dive into your book in a little bit about burnout and burnout's been there for a while, just probably gotten more, um, publicized since COVID uh, uh, and the pandemic, but um, what, what were the challenges that caused burnout for you when you taught that really just made it a struggle for you? Cause you come across, I mean, that in your writing, in your videos, I've seen a couple of videos of you speaking. I mean, you are just as sincere and passionate as you are right now. You, I think <laughs> it's just who you are. And so I'm just shocked to hear that you've had burnout. I'm shocked to hear that, uh, you probably struggled. I, I'm curious what those struggles were. Yeah, it's pretty much the the trifecta. So nerding out for a little bit here, the yeah. primary dimensions of burnout are emotional exhaustion. So when our job demands and our job resources aren't lining up, the second component is around cynicism. And that's usually a extension of learned helplessness. So I have a goal or I have something I want to achieve and then it's not adding up. So I'm starting to feel detached or my district wants to do this initiative, but then in a couple of years, they're going to drop that initiative and I put all this time into it. And now it's not even being used. And then the third dimension is inefficacy. So I feel like my current skill set isn't matching up to my goals and I'm not achieving. And when I reflect back in my moments of burnout, all three of those things were happening concurrently. I was dealing with really challenging, disrespectful students and really challenging and disrespectful parents that created the students. <laughs> and uh, even staff to staff, there were like these moments of conflict where everyone just seemed kind of grouchy and not doing well. Um, in my personal world, I was transitioning to being a new parent. I had a, a colicky nightmare of a child who just wouldn't stop crying 
And so I felt all this inefficacy of like, I couldn't get my own kid to stop crying. I can't get these kids to want to even pick up a pencil. Like nothing is working. And that was kind of this, this weight or this baggage that I felt like I was carrying around for quite a while. And so much of it was that all my energy went into others. I went into helping my wife and helping support my son and helping my students that it was like, you know what, maybe I should actually apply this stuff to myself. And I still remember the moment when I was like, I'm going to quit teaching. I'm done with this. And I thought like, that's pretty ironic that literally your day-to-day job is teaching teenagers resilience and how to thrive and how to apply gratitude. And like, you're never actually applying it to yourself the way that you could. So the things that are common to all educators I experienced, I think what has made the major difference for me is knowing the strategies. So what is the research behind it? And how is my thinking either making this better or worse? What actions can I use right now when times are good or not so good? And that has been huge for my personal life, my professional life and beyond. So when you uh, were teaching and going through it, did you have a mentor who kind of helped you? Did you seek out mentors? Mm-hmm. Did you, how did you go through the exploration process? Cause I, I assume now when people get introduced to your book or they see your videos or they get a chance to experience you at a professional development or a, a speech, uh, a lot of people probably seek you out as that. I'm curious who you sought mm-hmm. out or how you got through it. Yeah. My mentor was the library. Like when I say nerded out, I think <laughs> you know, so much of this stuff wasn't a, a resource or that was available. So like, I was a nerd who was just diving into books in the major researchers and looking up peer reviewed articles and just like trying to figure it out. I mean, that's what a lot of it was, was taking the robust research, you know, I'm looking at like Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth and Ed Diner and like all of these gurus within positive psychology, and then trying to parry out of like, okay, this sounds great in theory, what the junk does it look like in a classroom with kids? Like, how do I get kids to buy into gratitude? And so, I mean, I was just trudging along and making mistakes and figuring stuff out. But I think like life was that major process of you try something and it doesn't work. And rather than give up, you try to figure out like, why didn't that work? So that was primarily it. I felt like I was kind of on an island as a teacher teaching positive psychology because there just weren't many programs out there. So I was just hanging out with books and nerding out in the library to try to make sense of it all. Did um, your you know, department chair, your principal, assistant principal, whoever was kind of overseeing it, did any of them think you were pretty crazy going through that? <laughs> I still remember my superintendent came up to me when, when we re- decided we we're going to pitch this positive psychology class. And she's like, so I'm not going to walk into your classroom and y'all are just going to be singing Kumbaya and <laughs> sitting around a campfire, are you? And I'm like, no, like, it's going to be legitimate. You got to trust me. Um, I am really thankful that my principal, uh, my curriculum director, they they really trusted me to kind of take this autonomously, I think, because they knew how passionate I was and they knew, yeah. you know, I really cared deeply, not only about content, but the craft of teaching and getting really good at that. So they were kind of like, all right, like, let us know what we can do. I mean, I came to them with all sorts of research and the plan and how the process would flow and what my big picture plans were. Um, but they were kind of just like, all right, you go do your thing. Yeah. <laughs> let, us, let us know if we can help out. And what was amazing to me is when we first started teaching the content to students, we had like 17 students and they were considered quote unquote at risk. And they didn't have a choice to take the class. They were just like, we were thrown into it together a whole year of just hanging out together and trying to figure life out. Um, 
and there were tons of growing pains around that. But, you know, the next year we doubled. So we had two classes and then we opened it up as an elective that any student could take. And, you know, as the time I was teaching it, we had about 80 to 90 percent of our students chose to take that elective because they had seen the impact with other students. They had seen it develop. So. I mean, it was like a little experiment that just kept growing and growing and growing in impact. And that was really rewarding to be able to see. Well, so then when did you get into making videos? Because I watched several of your YouTube videos and uh, it's not often that you get a million views or more on a particular video. I'm sure that you'd love to know the magic of that as well, because that's a hard thing to do once, let alone try to repeat. Uh, When did you get into it? And then let's dive into that million view video at some point. Yeah. So the video actually started as a blog in the background of as I was teaching um, both, you know, as I'm diving into my master's work around motivation and I'm trying to develop this positive psychology class. I just started blogging and I had no like I figured maybe my mom would read it if I'm lucky, but this is more like me. I just need to process and put things out there. And also, like, you know, I didn't have a lot of research or resources to pull from. And so this is kind of my way of trying to pay it forward of. If there are other teachers out there trying to figure this out, here's what I'm going through. And I remember what students really need to hear that legitimately I was up at like two or three in the morning and I couldn't fall asleep because I could not get through to my students of like why this thing called school is about more than just what you're seeing in front of you. It's more than just the test score and more than just, you know, showing up to class. And so rather than just stewing in bed, I got up and went down to my living room and three or four in the morning, just started hashing out the draft of this blog post. So the next day I polished it, put it out there in the world. Nothing really became of it. I think my mom did read it and share it with her Facebook <laughs> She friends. shared it with her five friends. and <laughs> her five friends. All the other moms were like, oh, that's so sweet. Uh, <laughs> but it was probably three months later, I all of a sudden, my email is blowing up that this blog had gone viral. I think, you know, that day it had about 500,000 views. Um, To this date, that blog has had, I think about 5 million views and it was shared all over the place. And so that was like, oh, that's, I'd never expected this thing to come up. Um, But it was mostly a lot of people were requesting, like, you should turn this into a video. Like, I think my kids would get so much more even from just like seeing you deliver it. So I reached out to a, a local video production team that I knew and I was like, can we turn this into a video? And that's, what became what students really need to hear. So um, again, it's it was this wild world that I never expected. At, you know, it was me processing and I didn't really think other people would be able to resonate, but um, it struck a chord. And I think it's brought up more than anything, really good conversations. You know, I get a lot of counterpoints and I get a lot of, you know, students responding of like, well, here's what teachers really need to hear of our experience. And that is really cool to see that people are having those conversations around what is the point of school and what does that reframing do to our actions and our behaviors? Yeah. One of the, one of the compliments I'd like to give you from the video is I appreciate the deepness of the words. I appreciate the sincerity in which you deliver it and the power in which you deliver it. But I think the the most important part is it doesn't feel like you're lecturing anyone. So just mm. what you said, it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing folks that can jump in and feel free to give a counterpoint or students to say, hey, but there's yeah. something else. Because I think your demeanor, which is hard to come across uh, in, in video, I think when you're when just one person's talking to a screen, 
makes it feel like I could engage with you in that thought mm. and I could just go back and forth. So that's pretty interesting. I think, you know, coming back to uh, when you were talking about building that positive psychology class and your superintendent had some yeah. questions. I mean, you did say something pretty strong in there that I personally enjoy, but I'm, I wonder if you got some critics when you say uh, that academics is not the main event of school. Uh, how did that how did that go with folks uh, in your immediate area? And then could you just expound upon what you mean by that? Yeah, that I think that line among the many lines is the one that most creates conversation. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, it, directly from my like supervisor, I still don't even know if, if my supervisors ever even saw the video or came across it. Um, but I think that they immediately within my circle, they know that I'm a big believer in the metacognitive skills and I'm a big believer in the social emotional learning skills and how those translate. And, you know, I was able to back it up at our first year positive psychology group between the freshman and sophomore year and going through the program, we reduced the failure rates by about 66%. So mm. they were able to see tangibly, like these students were actually succeeding more. They're getting more done. They're being more successful in school, even though we weren't overtly talking about school. So like, I'm always in that standpoint of let let the program prove itself and collect the data and the evidence. Now, beyond that, I, you know, there's still, still those moments when I'm like, oh, this is kind of a tricky concept of like, what is the main point of school? Because a lot of people brought up the idea of like, well, then why isn't it the main point? Like the whole point is for them to get academic learning. Um, and what I tried to articulate in that video, and I still don't know if I did it quite well, is even though that should be the goal, even though that is what everyone wants and that mindset is, if we're being honest with ourselves and we really look at the types of conversations we're having with students and the types of struggles, like it isn't the frontline academics is always the challenge. There's so much below the surface that we're really trying to deal with. We're dealing with our sense of self and our dealing with our sense of purpose and goal setting. And we're struggling with understanding the why behind it so that you know, I looked at both myself as a student and a lot of the students I was dealing with academically, intellectually, they were solid. Like any one of those kids could have successfully easily passed all of their classes, but it was all of those sub skills and those issues, the trauma they had been through, the stress management skills that they lacked, that that was the roadblock. So I think that's been one of the conversations that's come out of it of like, yeah, it should be the main event of school, but if we're honest, it's not. So if that isn't the main event, then how do we approach that differently with how we're structuring and teaching kids? Well, I, I think, you know, again, everybody, I'm sure, especially when you have 5 million people reading the words you've written down and another million watch it, uh, I'm just going to add myself to the person who is giving you unsolicited feedback. But um, <laughs> it's all, all positive here. I think what I what I really appreciate is, and maybe it's just because I identify with your your words as a trigonometry teacher and just thinking like most, even the kids who like coming to my trigonometry class, I felt five years, maybe they're still doing something with it. 10 years, possibly not 20 years. And that may be a negative view. So I probably need to look at that paradigm, mm. but I always wanted them to take away the problem solving skills that came with it and have a passion. Like you said, they, they, there's gotta be a skill set in every class that lead you to lifelong success right so it's the subject but it's also um like you said conquering adversity is the main event and if you learn that well that is what's you know every time you and i run into a professional challenge 
It's what do we do? What are the steps? How do we unpack this to be able to put one foot in front of the other? And I feel like the people who are successful in every endeavor have that skill set down. Right. Absolutely. And again, like to, from the practical standpoint, is I would look at my group of students and realize, you know, probably not many of them truly in life need to know the deep theme and symbolism of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or to kill a mockingbird or Romeo and Juliet. Like probably many of them aren't going to dive into fiction in postgraduate work, but so what is that? What is the thing that we're getting to? And it was almost like not only for my students being able to articulate that, that sub or core skill set, but also for me as a teacher as well, that I have a response now when students are like, when am I ever going to need to know this of being able to say like, well, you might not ever need to know what the theme is, but here's what you're learning by getting deeper with analytical exercises. And here's how you're developing your critical thinking. And here's how you're building your empathy. Like those things matter a lot. Um, and it's much easier to justify for teachers and for students when they know really what we're talking about and the core skills we're getting to. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to encourage people necessarily. I've done it one other time out of, you know, almost hundred podcasts where I said, stop, go check the video out <laughs> just so you understand what we're talking about. But this video is just awesome. And I'm, again, it has a million views. So I don't have to be yeah. telling anybody this, but what students really need to hear by Chase Milky is a really awesome video. And I actually appreciated, uh, I think you made another video a year later, which is, is teaching worth it and hadn't got the same views, but I felt the sincerity behind, you know, as an educator, the things that you're thinking about, I feel like you didn't miss on uh, the questions that at some point, if you've taught for a year, let alone five, let alone 10, I swear you've, you had to have thought all those. Um, how was that video received from your critics? Yeah, that one, uh, truth be told, I think that that for me was a far more uh, personalized and I feel like far better crafted piece than even what students really need to hear. You know, like it, anytime uh, uh, creative gets this like big impact, they're like, well, what about that made it so successful and this one not so much. And so I, I play those games in my mind, but um, for that one, you know, I hasn't had as many views. I haven't had as many responses, but I would say on the whole, many more people were in that mode of like, yes, like, thank you. Like that's, that's kind of what I was going through in that experience. And with all of my work, I think what has allowed it to resonate the most is being able to truly empathize and help people see that they're not alone and help people see that like the stuff that they're struggling with and the questions that they have, that isn't a flaw in their character, that there are things within our context that are creating some of those challenges and struggles. So like, let's work together rather than isolated silos um, to try to figure these things out. So still to this day, that piece has been one of the more impactful for me, even if it doesn't have as much of the, the wide reach. Um, and in large part, I think it, since it's more geared towards teachers and the other one is geared more towards students, I think there's a, a larger group of students who access it um, right. compared to the group of teachers. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, again, I, our, our goal today is to have a deeper discussion about battling burnout, which yeah. I know is uh, really your heart's work right now. And so um, when I think about that video, you know, is teaching worth it? All those questions are what, you know, I would go through and I'm like, man, should I be doing this? Is this the right place for me? Is that part of the impetus to led you in that led you to become an author and writing your book on burnout? Honestly, no. <laughs> Ironically, like that piece, I was uh, mostly just processing for myself and trying to give teachers some of that, that 
oomph to realize, okay, you're not alone, that there's there's stuff that can't tangibly be re recited or recorded that can make this job worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, but really what led me into working with teachers and writing the book was I was interviewed by uh, the ASCD. They're writing an article on how to teach happiness. And since not many people were teaching it at the time, my name must have popped up on a Google search. And so they reached out. And as we we're interviewing, like, how do you teach happiness? I just kept coming back to this idea of like, we as teachers, we have to practice what we preach. And if we really want our students to understand resilience and gratitude, like we have to make it a part of our world as well. And so it kind of shifted my thinking of like, why aren't I also helping teachers understand how to apply this within their world? I do so much with helping students apply it, but this helped me through burnout. This is something that I should share just as much as I share lesson plans around positive psychology. And so that was kind of the, the spark. And I asked the, the um, interviewer for ASCD, of like, hey, would you ever be interested in a book around how this looks for teaching? And they're like, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, then it became, okay, translating this, taking everything that I've tried on my own and everything I've taught with students and how do I package this in a way that teachers can access it without it feeling like they're at fault, without it feeling like it's, you know, their flaws as human beings that have led to this, to this point, much more of it happens to all of us, but yep. there are skills and strategies that can help us individually start to rise above that. And I think that was really important to me that it wasn't a blaming, it wasn't a you're not doing enough. It is, here's how to just do things a little differently. So before we dive into the content, what, uh, I think this was published in 2019. Is that right? Around there? Uh, oh, yeah. 18, 19. So pre-pandemic is where I just want to make sure yeah. that we were there. So I'm curious before we talk about <laughs> the cures, right? Which, you know, air quotes. Um, <laughs> what, what were you looking at? What were you noticing in the world of education before the pandemic that said, we've got to dive into this topic deeply and very, take it very seriously. And how has that changed since the pandemic? Oh my gosh. It, it has been a huge shift from what I've noticed when I was first diving into it and writing it, it was much more, you know, I was thinking of a lot of teachers like myself who like, they still want to do this work and they love this work, but they're in, in a lag or funk and they just need to, to get a couple strategies here and there to pull themselves up. Additionally, like here are things that help us not only become better teachers, but better people. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's some interest and there's some conversations around that, but since the pandemic hit, I mean, pun intended that burnout is a hot topic right now that so many teachers, so many school leaders, I mean, it's not just education. So many occupations and professions are dealing with the struggles of burnout, um, that it became way more direct conversations, way more, I would say, uh, broad conversations as well. So my current work, you know, stepping a little into the future here, um, burnout cure was, here's my kind of my story. Here's what helped me. I hope it helps you. Here's some research-based strategies to support. But now it is, okay, it's not just the individual's onus to deal with burnout. So now that teachers have some strategies for themselves, how do we look at organizations and culture and how can we as school leaders, um, as community members, help people be at their best so that they can give their best? So that's kind of the next phase of, you know, start off a lot of teachers, yeah, this is helpful for me, but now it's, we're going to need more than just a few of these things. We're going to need to look at some, some big changes within organizations.
Yeah. So to your point, it's like, um, you know, one of the things we talk about in organizations changes inside out, right? So the first thing you have to do is look at the mirror and that can help you, right? And you're, you're building up and you're seeing it, but now you're like, okay, I feel like I've got my foundation. Now I can appropriately look out and say, what the heck's going on? How do we create this real culture where we're all living it versus me and my silo? Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it's not an either or the organization or the individual. It's a both yep. and. Right. And the burnout cure was, you know, for people, rather than waiting for the organization to change, here are some things that you can do. And now it is organization, rather than waiting for your teachers to change, here are some things you can do. So how do we help people meet in the middle of start with yourself always because you have the most control over your own attitudes, actions, and awareness. And once you feel like you're developing skills in that, then how do you have the energy and the support to not just help yourself, but help the organization? Well, uh, I wish we could dive into all 10 chapters, but I think what we can do, <laughs> I'm sure you've got plenty of practice is breaking down a few of the nuggets. You know, I, I you, you broke down the 10 chapters into different divisions where, you know, it's awareness, attitudes, and actions. Can you just expound upon those in a way that our listeners can, you know, if they're driving to work right now as they're listening or coming home, maybe they can get uh, a little bit of hope um, and direction about how to fight their own burnout. For sure. So the most important key, and I write this in the introduction, is that there is no quick, easy fix. There's no panacea that if you do this one strategy one time, you're set for life. So, you know, someone goes and they write one gratitude journal and they're like, why am I not happier six months later? It's like, well, like we need to habituate these things. They have to really shift how we're looking at the world. And so I made the comparison to for myself of like eating habits and, and dieting and exercise. Like, we start making the change when we change our awareness, we change just how we're looking at things. So how I look at calories I consume is going to influence potentially my choices. And so when I have new information of how I'm looking at the world, that can shift my attitude, which is how I frame things as they happen. And once I shift my attitude, that can give me more motivation and more habituated actions and behaviors that can help me change long-term and change some habits. So Kind of took that idea of how we change big habits like our dietary health and transpose it into how do we use this for our emotional health as well. Um, kind of struggling. There are a couple of chapters around awareness because I think that was the big thing for me as I dove into psychology is like there really isn't a whole lot of objective truth. There is a lot of how we perceive the world and we're perceiving things wildly different than they might actually happen with how our brains function and work. And so looking at, okay, if I have a choice in how I'm framing something, I can make a choice of what I want to spend my energy to. So one of my favorite chapters I wrote was around being a goodness curator. Some people are what I call emotional hoarders, where like every emotion that happens to them, whether it's their emotion or someone else's emotion, like they carry it with them. Like they stress about other people's stress that has nothing to do with them. And then so they come home to their family and their loved ones still carrying all this weight of everything that went horribly wrong. And it starts to really impact or erode their well-being when there were probably objectively just as many positive and good moments in their day. But because our brains are wired with negativity bias, we just gravitate more towards the threats and the negativity as a survival mechanism. So knowing that I think is empowering of like, okay. I actually had a lot of good happen in my day. I just haven't spent the time to like focus and pour energy into it. So that's why I brought up the idea of a curator that art curators, they look at the world and they notice all the terrible art in the world. 
but they don't purchase all the terrible art. Like they only spend their time investing in the art that gives them meaning and value. So what does that look like on an emotional level? So that's kind of the starting point or an access point of how do I just shift my awareness and thinking? And then it starts to get into more of those attitude shifts and reframes of how do you let go of resentment? What does it look like to actually shift your thinking to be a little bit more forgiving and letting go of the little things that really don't matter in the long run? Um, how do you adopt a gratitude attitude or mindset of, you know, in any given moment, we can talk about how things are, could be way better. And then we might feel worse about our situation of like, oh, I wish I had more money. I wish I had a nicer car. At the same time, we can also downshift of things could be a lot worse. I could be completely unemployed. I could not have access to transportation. I could have all of these other issues. And that choice is going to impact what I do next with my actions. And so the last categories around what are some of the, the robustly researched replicated findings around actions that have an impact on well-being. And so these are things like altruistic actions or intentional acts of kindness. So when I do something kind for someone, not only do I get a boost of well-being, but that actually creates a ripple within my community that can loop back. And then I'm not only impacting myself, but I'm impacting the community at large. How does goal striving and having goals that might have nothing to do with education but yep. still linked to our well-being. Like, how do we do that appropriately and effectively? So well, kind of taking all the different lessons and try to package it into a, a process that we could use. I love it. I think for me, when I think about some of the best teachers I know, they are so empathetic. They are so connected into your point of the curation, the, the awareness piece. Um, they, it just wears heavy on their heart. Right. So I do think yeah. that's, that's, I mean, again, these are your best teachers and you probably would never know. So you're shocked when they leave because we didn't really fully understand how they're carrying it out. If I'm a school leader, what are some ideas or strategies, even if you haven't even thought about this before that you think school leaders could use or, you know, district level folks to dive in to find out how heavy these burdens yeah. are people are carrying and hopefully help them with those. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked because that's exactly the, the world I'm diving into. So um, I'm currently drafting my next book, which is for school leaders around as an organization, how do we impact? And um, again, this is a place where there's a ton of research already out there, but a lot of ex uh, educators just haven't had access to it or knowledge of it. So um, Christina Maslock and Michael Leiter, they've been studying burnout for decades and um, they have identified, we talked earlier, those three dimensions. They've also identified there are six common causes to burnout, um, like lack of autonomy and control and increased workload or feeling an overload of work. So there are a lot of things um, a school leader could do. Honestly, I think one of the best starting points is to actually ask teachers the question. Um, so there are legitimate, Maslock has a burnout inventory. Um, that helps give you quantified information. It's been validated and it's reliable. Of, you can see where any organization is in burnout. You can see what are the six factors most impacting it. And then you move from there. But that goes back to that empathy idea of a lot of times we make assumptions. We think we know that someone needs something when if we had just had honest, even sometimes difficult conversations with them about how they're feeling and what's the cause, that can be a huge impact. So I'll give one example. One of my favorite questions that I tell school leaders to ask their staff is, what is one thing that if it were taking off your plate would allow you to do your job better? 
And I love that question because it gives something specific and tangible. It lets the school leader know, you know, do I have some common themes or threads of what's causing this work overload? I have something that I can act upon um, because again, if we don't know what people need or if we ask them a vague question of how are you feeling? And they're like, I'm stressed. A lot of school leaders are like, okay, but what do I do with that? Like, how do I impact that? Um, so depending on what questions you're asking and really pinpointing what is your experience, what would help and how can I support that is really, really important. I call it the idea of having a compassionate mindset. Uh, it's not just enough to know where people are at. It is how can I help them resolve these problems and work collaboratively? So that's one of many steps that I think school leaders could take. Um, the second big idea, I think, rather than well-being isn't just about removing the bad, it's also about increasing the good. And so a lot of times we frame our, our goals around that negative mindset of, I want my teachers to be burned out less. I want them to have less yep. frustration when it's like on the flip side, okay, what do you want more of? I want my teachers to be more empowered. I want my teachers to be more engaged. I want my teachers to have enthusiasm. And when that's the target, that's going to have whole different strategies that we bring into play of how do I give my teachers a little more autonomy or how do I help them match their skills and strengths to their situations so that they can have the positive and not just the absence of the bad. Yeah, I, I really like that because right now, you know, everyone, I just got back from a superintendent's conference um, mm. and hearing them talk, they all, all of them are so empathetic thinking, how do I help? my schools, yeah. how to help my district staff, how to help my kids, how do I remove stuff, take it away? And yeah. yes, that's important, but I don't feel like I feel palpability around trying to answer that question. I don't yeah. feel palpability about what you're talking about, which is how do we double down on creating a place where people feel empowered and excited to come to? They want to, right? But I feel like the pain is so much there. They're just trying yeah. to first step is just take, take away those challenges. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I was just posting recently that um, employees who feel like they are supported by their school leader or administrator are 70% less likely to burn out. And support is one of those things that we don't have to invest in new programs or new curriculum. Support can look like I'm just going to make a point to try to check in one on one with my teachers and see, hey, what do you need this upcoming week? Or I'm going to give them a little affirmation and validation of something specific they're doing in their classroom or in a staff meeting that was really helpful. Like, those are very quick, pretty easy, usually free ways to show people support. And that has a big impact on individuals. Um, so I think like just getting back to trying to help humans be humans and be positive and support each other is, is more helpful than trying to adopt or bring in some whole new content or initiative. Because usually that initiative is going to be more work, which is going to create more workload and potentially burn people out even more. Yep. So when you talk, you got a few different chapters on attitudes. So yeah. that gratitude, finite framing, uh, optimism, empathy, forgiveness, which mm -hmm. one of those, again, I know it's what I appreciate about it is, you know, it's, I could fall into all of those, or there could be one that really yeah. just speaks to me and one that speaks to you. Is there a thread that you've noticed that people gravitate towards first or ones that you hear people say, you know what, that the way you talked about that or the way you framed it was really helpful for me. Yeah, probably the one that resonates the most with individuals is the concept of finite framing, yep. in part because it's really simple as a mindset shift, but it's also really powerful. So the concept of finite framing uh, is every single moment we are in is unique. Every moment will come to an end. And so yep. therefore, every moment can have value. 
And so often we don't live in the moment. So it automatically brings into mindfulness of like, what is happening right now? And how can I look at this moment as truly unique? Like I will never, I remember reminding myself, my students, when they would come into my room, I will never teach them this lesson on this day in this way again in my life. Even if the same kids roll in and the same lesson plan, like all of us are different in so many thousands of ways. So how do I make this moment impactful? But the way I think it is most useful, like it's nice when we savor things and things are good, but I think it's even more powerful when things aren't so good. So when I'm in a moment of difficulty, reminding myself, first of all, this moment will pass. I will not be in this difficult moment forever. Even if it is a permanent change, I can still grow through this change. And so if it isn't going to be here forever, then I can look at what can I gain from this moment? How can I find some value in it? Um, and within my keynote, you know, I, I tell a, an impactful story with a student where like I saw this in action. Um, you know, I won't spoil that story, but the gist of it is realizing that typically when students are at their most difficult is when they most need a caring and positive adult. Mm-hmm. And so that finite frame of like, this is difficult. My kid is angsty rather than running from it, which we so badly want to do in our brains. It is how do I have that finite frame of I'm only maybe going to get this interaction with this kid once. How do I make the most of the situation? And I think that is really empowering of looking over the past couple of years in the moments we've been through that we only get now one time in our life. So how do I make the most of now, even if it isn't always pleasant all the time? I love that. Um, and only, again, I would keep you here for two hours. So the only reason I'm moving on is quick. <laughs> like my wife would tell you, uh, she goes, you'll get into a five minute conversation that becomes a two hours with somebody you just met. So let alone someone whose work I respect and have looked into so much. So I apologize if I go too quickly, um, no but I want to make sure I honor our time. And I don't know if everybody wants to talk to us for two hours, but uh, so same question about the last, you know, the last step, which is actions. You know, you talk about altruism, yeah. crafting your calling and ambitious acts. What seems to be, again, they're all great. And I love how you've yeah. got strategies and, uh, um, I call them like projects or whatever, you know, that I, that I can try on my own, which one seems to be kind of an anchor or a foundational step? Yeah, I think ambitious acts or acts of kindness are the most important. Um, looking at the research around social networks, there's a couple of researchers, Chris Dacus and Fowler, and they poured their information or their mindset into the Framingham Heart Study, which was a longitudinal study done in Framingham. Um, small little town, and they surveyed people on all sorts of stuff, lifestyle, and their heart health. But these social scientists dove back into the data because they could figure out, they could look at how social networks influence one of each other. So they could identify that, you know, divorce was actually contagious and sleep hygiene, getting terrible sleep was actually contagious. It rippled out socially to people's networks. And not only did they find that it was contagious, that it was contagious up to three degrees of influence, meaning the things I do, the actions, the the tone of my voice, my mood doesn't just impact my immediate circle. It ripples out to their network and their network's network. And that I think is really empowering of like, holy cow, this one act I do isn't just for this one person at me. Like this could create the ripple that really influences my culture of my community. So I really try to narrow in on when we're talking about acts of kindness, we're not talking about big, massive things that cost a lot of money or time. It can be the simplest little moments that have the biggest impact on others. 
Um, do I have time to share a quick story? Yeah, that of really highlighted? I'm not trying so, to get rid of you. <laughs> so this is one of the bits of research that I was like, you know what? I'm going to test this out on my students because I have these built-in test subjects. So in our positive psychology class, we would spend one day where we would make a field trip out of these acts of kindness. So I would give them assignment. Your assignment is to make strangers smile. I would give them a couple of days to brainstorm some projects. And I learned a ton. I learned that teenagers are super creative. Like they came up with so many wild ideas and some of them were actually legal and didn't involve drugs. Uh, but they came up with all these wild ideas to make strangers smile. But the simplest thing they did was write strangers positive notes. So they would hand out index cards with these little affirmations and they're probably like misspelled horribly and terrible grammar. I remember one day a group of my students were in the library in downtown Kalamazoo, Michigan, and they came up and they were emotional and sobbing. And I was like, stranger danger. Oh my gosh, what happened? And they're like, no, let me tell you. They had a goal. They wanted to find the most miserable person they could to try to make them smile. So they're looking around the library and they see this lady. She looks miserable. And so they're like, perfect person. Let's hand her the perfect note. They pick out a note and they hand it to this lady and they awkwardly scramble away. And then the lady starts bawling in the middle of the library. So my students rush up to this lady and they're going to apologize to her. And as they go to say they're sorry, she throws her arms out to give these strangers and students a hug. And she cries into their shoulders, these teenagers. And she tells them that just one month prior to receiving this note, she had suffered a miscarriage. And she had lost her child and how every day for the last month, she felt hopeless, like she was punished. But she told my students that this note they handed to her, to her was like a sign from God to not give up. And what blows my mind is the note said four words, it will get better. And those four words may have forever changed the trajectory of this human being's life and her sense of hope and resilience. And then it ripples back to my students. I, you know, the student come home or come back from the field trip and say, Mr. Milky, never in my life have I felt like I had purpose until today. And that ripples to me and to try to ripple out to anyone who listens to me talk of, you know, we so over often overcomplicate what it means to make an impact when it's these simple little actions we can do every day of smiling to someone or writing them in a note or help and hold the door or the types of things that we felt we lost through the pandemic of human interaction. Like, we're in a position where we can do those things again. And not only does it help boost our well-being, but it ripples out to the entire community. And that's a hugely powerful thing for us to have. Well, I, uh, my wife will tell you, like, I'm emotional, but usually I'm just like cheering for people. I don't often get like <laughs> tears in my eyes. But when I think about the power of that is um, just, I mean, think about your students now, the way they look at their lives of, I can make an impact in the life of every person I meet every single day. How can I, I'm like, to me, it just, it gives me goosebumps. And I don't know if it was a video of yours or a keynote that I saw, but uh, you talk somewhere about um, how we overcomplicate what it takes to influence lives. And I may not be saying the quote, right. But that, when you just described that, that's what I, that was the picture of what I felt like you were trying to tell me or the audience. Does that resonate yeah. with you? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that is. And again, you know, this can circle back to everything we've talked about so far. For a school leader, they might be overcomplicating what their staff needs right now. Um, their staff needs affirmation and support and they need some autonomy. And for a teacher, we might be overcomplicating what our students need in the classroom or like, maybe they don't 
you know, need these super deep analysis statements of an essay, like maybe they need some, some confidence boost and I get to do that by my interaction and I don't have to lesson plan for that. I can just make that happen. And when we look at our colleagues, no matter what field or profession we're in of, you know, what my colleague might need is for me to leave my classroom, jump over to theirs and just say, hey, how's it going? And have a conversation. And it's, it's those little moments of humanity that I think allow us to thrive and persevere way more powerfully than the most expensive gifts and most in-depth initiatives. That's awesome. Well, before I, before I let you go, there's a last few questions that we ask everybody this season. And I'm very curious your answers for all these. So um, we strongly believe in the power of habits and disciplines here at Franklin Covey education, Mm -hmm. obviously. I think it's obvious to most of our listeners. Um, However, every guest that we have has had something different. They've said about when we ask the question, what is a habit or discipline? You could choose more than one that you do on a daily basis or a weekly basis that helps you be the best version of yourself. The one I try to remind myself to do every day, it's, it's a form of mindfulness. There's a mindfulness meditation called walking meditation. And I don't get hardcore into it because I'm a busy teacher and it's really hard to do <laughs> in-depth meditation. But I have this little mantra that I say to myself and it sounds super cheesy Um, but it is walk peace, breathe love. And so when I'm walking, I try to take more peaceful steps, which really ultimately is like slowing down my walking and trying to be present with the walking and breathe love is as I'm breathing in, I try to just have a moment of compassion of actually looking at a student in the hallway and smiling or trying to get my brain out of all the activities and tasks and objectives I have and just like be present in the moment. So that's my little reminder as much as possible as I'm walking is just to walk peace, breathe love. And it's a mental cue, a nice attitude shift that I've habituated. We, we just had on um, a guest named nicknamed the Iron Cowboy who ran a hundred iron. It completed a hundred Ironman triathlons in a hundred consecutive days. Right. Oof. I mean, just picture trying to do one, let alone a hundred of those. <laughs> right? The most encouraging thing that I think I took away from that conversation we had was he he hated running. When he started, his wife made him run like a four miler. And he's like, you know, running is no fun. So I can't do this. And then he did a marathon. Then he tried this little sprint triathlon. He couldn't even finish the swim. So he had to hold on to the wall of a pool or something. And so I, I, I say that to you because you described yourself at the beginning of the podcast as a student who was kind of all over the place and loved and like moving everywhere, which is great because I identify a lot with that probably still. Um, But then you just said your, your discipline right now is walk, peace, breathe, love. And that slows it down. Doesn't mean you change, right? You're channeling your energy. Have you, has that helped you evolve or have you always been kind of a peaceful person like that? No, in case you're listening, I'm shaking my head violently right now that I go back to that book, The Art of Happiness, and that I read in high school. And that that forever shifted me because previously I was I was really angsty and I was angry. I would get so upset standing in line of like, how dare the universe prevent me from doing what I need to do? Or even as an adult, a red light, I would get angry at a red light. Um, so it it was one of those pieces that like I realized so much of my thought process and energy was making me more angry or more anxious or more upset. So this was kind of the counterpoint of like, 
You need to have these active, continual habits that remind you to just slow down and relax because this that was not my MO. It's something I've had to really train and develop into myself. That's awesome. I, I mean, again, our, our point of this podcast is, you know, change starts here to become a yeah. great leader. It takes a lot of failing forward, recreating of yourself, recreating of your purpose. Um, to your point, there's no magic fix. And so it's just, it's encouraging when I hear folks that, that to me, uh, just walk, peace, breathe, love is something that I think I could steal that would help mm. calm my mind and anxiety a little bit to focus on the purpose of like trying to connect in every moment. So it's good to know that you didn't start there because I you could have been Yoda your whole life and just <laughs> articulate it better. Uh, I think I know the answer to this next question, but feel free to choose other books if you want. But what is a book or two uh, that have made a huge impact on your life that you think others should try and read? Yeah, I mean, everyone will know that The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama was was a game changer for me. Uh, but for those who are interested in the realm of positive psychology, kind of the follow up and how my positive psychology class came into my mind was when I was a teacher, I remember having that moment of like struggle and stress. And I was like, man, I wish I could find a book like I found in high school, like a book on happiness. And so I just Google searched and there's this collection of essays called The Compassionate Instincts. Um, Dr. Keltner runs, I believe, out of UC Berkeley, the Greater Good organization, and they do a lot of research and posting. And um, that was the first time I had like a science-based look at all these different elements of compassion and empathy. Um, and so that was hugely influential of, of actually being able to look at research and look at details and data. I mean, I'm a nonfiction sort of reader most. That is so clear, the by the way. That... <laughs> right? you've, you've cited about... 32. I don't know how you remember all the people who did the research, but it is so impressive and it is clear that one, you're very passionate about it. So it sticks, but also you respect the heck out of the people who have kind of paved this path. For sure. It's the part, you know, I hang out in libraries. I'm, yeah. I'm a nerd. And so like, I just, those are my friends. My best friends are these researchers yeah. <laughs> I've never met before. Um, so that one was really, really impactful. Um, just in terms of getting some insight. Now, one one last one, if I can throw that out there, um, my good friend Kyle Shealy just wrote a book, How to Host a Viking Funeral. And he made a giant Viking ship out of cardboard and had people from all over the world send in their regrets. And he put them on this Viking ship and then burned it all down as like the symbolic thing. But he talks through his whole process of like, all of the doubts he had and all the moments when this project failed and just the irony of having like regrets in these moments, doing a project on regrets. And it's such a powerful book of helping people realize that even like super successful creative people go through these struggles and these regrets and how do they all come together. So top recommendation, that book has been awesome as just a way to kind of move on from 2020, 2021 and into a new world of how do we let go of some of those regrets. I'm excited about this next question. I'm hoping you're not going to say a book on tape from the library, but you can. I've had people, I've had people tell me. So the question for those of you uh, listening is, you know, what's on your playlist, and you can choose whatever activity you're thinking about. Um, I have had someone say, and she's someone I know very well and respect the heck out of. She chooses sports talk radio, but when you live in Philadelphia, that is the music of your. You know, that's that's the music you listen to every day. Um, what What's on your playlist right now in terms of driving to school, maybe, or working out? 
Yeah, I have a a pre-speech playlist. So anytime I'm going to present to a group, I have these songs that I run through to kind of, again, shift me to be like, just calm and present. Um, so it's mostly like some soul jams. I have, I found my smile again by D'Angelo, which is just like a good build up sort of song. Um, there's another awesome song called Surprise Yourself by Jack Garrett. Um, again, it's it's kind of those songs that have like a really good vibe and upbeat tempo to them, but also have this message of like, be yourself, look for the joy, realize that you can make an impact. So um, those, those are my go-to when I'm like, oh man, I'm so worried about standing on stage. Even yes. I've done it a bajillion times. It's like, I need that reminder of just be here, be present and have fun with it. So I have a good friend who uh, listens to like pump up music before yeah. Uh, yeah. and that works for him. For me, I've tried it once of going on stage and it like makes me a nervous wreck and so to your point it's comforting to know that i'm gonna listen to these songs i know the d'angelo one but i'm gonna listen to the jack garrett one to see because i have to listen to stuff that's almost slower than my speed to calm down and get me present do you feel the same way yeah i have to be careful not to start sweating before the speech yes and getting like too worked up because i sweat enough as it is on stage like i can't pump myself up too much it's more about like (laughs) all right mellow out be present right now (laughs) All right. Last question. Uh, and we do need to go. So, um, you know, leaders like yourself or you got surrounded by great friends, great stories, great people. Um, what, what's the best piece of, it could be leadership advice. You could come back to burnout advice that you're uh, Mm -hmm. trying to give folks right now, but just something that's on your heart, kind of like it will get better. Like your kids did just something along those lines that, um, you just can't get off your mind right now. Yeah, there's a quote I just came across that had, like it resonated with me because it connects so much with how I've tried to live my life over the past couple of decades. Um, it's from Alan Watts, and I believe the quote is, you're under no obligation to be the person you were five minutes ago. <laughs> and for me, I think that's really empowering of, you know, so much of we, we get tied to this idea of identity of like, oh, I can't do this because that's not me, or I can't do this because I haven't done this before. Even as a writer, how many times I would question whether to write something because I'm like, well, what if this isn't true 10 minutes from now? Or what if I have all these people critiquing me on this? And it's like, no, like I, I'm going to say what I want and be who I want to be right now. And then five minutes from now, if that didn't work out and I want to shift my approach or my attitude, like I have permission to make that change. And I just love that idea of like, I'm under no obligation to anyone to be who I was five minutes ago. I'm going to do what I need to do in this moment. Um, just connects so much to how I've tried to, to live with taking risks and to try things, even if they're going to fail and put stuff out there, even if no one listens to it or sees it, um, can be really empowering. That's, that's comforting to hear. And I, again, this isn't about, uh, it's not a political podcast, but I remember, you know, back, uh, a number of years ago, uh, almost 20 now, I guess, um, there's a presidential campaign where one candidate got called a flip flopper. And again, I, I'm not saying we're on one side or the other. I'm over, um, sim- I'm simplifying this too much, but um, I like the idea that I can get new evidence and change my mind, right? Uh, but for a long time, society, it was, it felt like for about a decade there, that wasn't okay. And it feels like it's yeah. coming around to being back okay. Uh, haven't thought about it through the five minute lens, but that is, that is very freeing, especially if you're someone trying to be bold and share ideas and passion and know that like, the goal isn't to be perfect, share your heart, but as you get new information, feel free to adjust and please do adjust if it's, you know, one of your best friend researchers from the library. 
Yeah, for sure. My, my homies from the library. And, <laughs> you know, to uh, say we probably shouldn't drastically change who we are every five minutes because that might be really hard as a leader. People are like, who is this person right now? But <laughs> I, I think to that point of, you know, constantly reevaluating and constantly just taking the risk of like, I'm going to try something rather than nothing. And if that fails or if that doesn't work out, then I'm going to reassess. I think that that's where the power can be found. That's great. Well, Chase, uh, I my heart is hopefully people have already hit pause and come back to our conversation because they've gone to listen or check you out on YouTube uh, or bought your book already. What what are the best ways for people to learn more about you and to engage with you? Yeah, I have a website where I primarily do my blogging and I don't blog as regularly now since I've been writing more um, lengthy books. Um, Affectiveliving.com, affective with an A, is one place that you can find me. Um, the speaking group I'm a part of is called Top Youth Speakers. And so there's information on the work I do and my speaking and training um, is out there. Um, or people can just find me on social media at Chase Melky, um, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm open to connecting with people and supporting. If anyone even just wants to shoot me a message with where they're at and start a dialogue. I love that sort of interaction. So those are a couple access points. Well, I think, I mean, again, I, uh, if people are listening and they're stressing, this is the perfect time of year. They're thinking, man, what am I going to do for kickoff next year? Who do I need to bring in to <laughs> really set the right tone for my district? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure you've done this once or twice, but I would just yeah. say if people are listening to you, they're getting a good vibe for who you are. You take this to the stage, plus a lot of funny jokes and very real stories. Um, I think it's a perfect fit. I think if people are listening, I know that you do a lot deeper work than that. Yeah. I just think a good way to get to know you is if they're trying to solve a problem right now is who's going to help us kick it off. You are an amazing person for that. And also as they get to know you, they recognize how, how much deeper you can go with them. Well, I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. I think that is uh, being able to help in any way, whether it is like a a one hour talk to motivate or deeper work within a district and applying that compassionate mindset. Um, I'm here to help anyone involved in education and beyond. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your courage. I appreciate your courage years ago to create your own class that your superintendent question. I appreciate you continue to have courage just to push the bounds of what is possible. I think, you know, this is the time, like I said, I got back from uh, being with a bunch of superintendents this week and everyone is stressed about the burnout of their staff. And then another level, which may be your third book, since you're writing the second one now, is how do we attract more people back to education? Because a lot of, a lot of districts that I talked to, districts that I worked in, we didn't necessarily have a ton of subs. We didn't necessarily have a ton of folks applying for open jobs. But some of my friends that I was just hanging out with, they've always had miles upon miles of people trying to get in their district and that has shrunk. And so we've got to figure out how to deepen that pool of applicant in the future. For sure. Let me know when you have another couple hours to nerd out on that one, because yeah. that, that, that's my lived experience right now as well. So yeah, I think these are universal challenges that a lot of schools are going to deal with. So let's work together to try to figure out ways to make an impact. Amen. Well, Chase, thanks for making time. Hopefully I have not kept you from getting to your next uh, observation or teacher group, whatever, wherever you're at. Um, I just appreciate you making time today. For sure. Thank you so much for letting me nerd out. Yeah, man, we'll be in touch and we'll, we'll nerd out a little bit longer when I call you. Okay. <laughs> it sounds good. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, 
uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.